Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. On this episode, I'll be discussing the late 40s romantic comedy, The Agony, starring Fred McMurray, Claudette Colbert, Marjorie Maine, Percy Kilbride, Louise Albritton, and Richard Long. It was directed by Chester Erskine and released in 1947 by Universal International Pictures. The Agony tells the story of a World War II veteran named Bob McDonald and his wife Betty, who leave their old lives in the big city for a dilapidated farm in the country. Bob is keen to make a go of ranch life, but Betty has a hard time adjusting to her new pastoral milieu. Betty's confidence is shaken by glamorous Harriet Putnam, who owns a farm nearby. Harriet shamelessly flirts with Bob, which makes Betty jealous. Betty questions whether farm life is for her, which throws a wrench in her and Bob's marital contentment. The Egg and I began as a 1945 memoir by Betty McDonald, who recounted her life as the wife of an insurance salesman turned farmer. McDonald's story takes place between 1927 and 1931, when she and her first husband, Robert Heskett, ran a 40-acre chicken farm in Center, outside Chimicum, about two hours northwest of Seattle. McDonald's biographer, Paula Becker, notes that in addition to raising poultry, Heskett and many of his neighbors also distilled moonshine, and this is a subject that appears in an unpublished draft, but not the final version, of The Egg and I. Becker explains that MacDonald began writing her book when she was in her mid-thirties and already married to her second husband, Donald MacDonald, and decided to focus most of her story on the humorous antics of her farm life, which included her eccentric neighbors, Albert and Susanna Bishop, and their 13 children. In The Egg and I, McDonald's calls them the Kettles, and I'll talk more about them later. Becker writes that McDonald's decision to make her memoir lighthearted was a deliberate one. Betty's marriage to Robert, or Bob as everyone called him, was far from the kooky portrait that she paints in The Egg and I. Bob was an alcoholic who often left Betty and their two daughters, Anne and Joan, for long stretches of time to tend to the farm on their own. Becker says that Bob grew increasingly irked by Betty's presence whenever he was at the farm. As their marriage fell apart, Betty leaned on the bishop's son, Edward, known as Bud, for help around the property. Years later, in an oral history account, Bud recalled, and I quote, I cut wood and got bark and stuff on the stumps for her in the wintertime because her husband was a bum, end quote. Becker's biography offers a graphic account of Bob Heckett's cruelty. He beat Betty, attempted to burn down their house, and threatened, and I quote, to disfigure her so that no one else would ever care for her, end quote. McDonald's book downplays her husband's villainous temper. In the film adaptation, Bob is kind-hearted and congenial. Not a whiff of his inspiration remains. In 1931, Betty filed for divorce from Bob after two previously failed attempts to leave. She took her two daughters and they left the farm for good. After she married McDonald in 1942, she spent the next several years working on her story, 
and her fortitude in the face of adversity is what the Washington Post columnist Jennifer Reese says was her critical appeal. Betty MacDonald first published The Egg and I in an abridged serialized form in the June to August 1945 issues of The Atlantic. It was then published by J.B. Lippincott Company on October 3, 1945, in book form, of course, and later climbed to the number one spot on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list, where it remained for 43 weeks. It sold over 1.2 million copies. Here's Betty in her own words explaining her success. It had to do with the book being selling a million copies. In the first place, Lippincott brought it out at a wonderful time. Everyone was very depressed for the war, and they wanted to read something light, and that was very lucky for me. Also, um, the war ended just before the book came out, which was very fortunate. And then, right afterward, they took the restrictions off the paper, which helped a great deal. So don't think for a minute that I think that I'm such a wonderful writer that my next book will also sell a million copies because I know that there were too many things that had to do with God sitting on my shoulder that made this book such a great seller. On April 19, 1946, the New York Times first reported that International, a production company run by William Gates and Leo Spitz, purchased the film rights to The Egg and I from McDonald for $100,000 plus percentage of the profits as a starring vehicle for Claudette Colbert. At the time, Colbert was working in Hollywood as a freelance actor and had signed a one-picture deal with International for a movie to be made in 1946. When the rights deal was announced, Colbert had not yet signed a contract to appear in the film adaptation. In July of 1946, it was announced that International was to merge with Universal to form a new company called Universal International Pictures. In the wake of this deal, Universal announced that their 1946-1947 production plans, which included westerns, serials, and what the New York Times describes as low-bracket films, or what we would call B-movies, would be completely eliminated in favor of a schedule of 25 pictures of distinction. The Egg and I was the first of those 25 films, and its budget was set at $1.9 million. That same month, it was announced that Claudette Colbert was formally signed on to play the lead in The Egg and I, which was to begin filming in the fall. It also noted that Fred Finkelhoff and Chester Erskine were working on the screen adaptation. They, along with Leonard Goldstein, would produce, and Erskine, who was a Broadway director turned film writer and producer, would also direct the film. Finkelhoff and Erskine saw comedic potential in McDonald's Ma and Pa Kettle characters and decided to make them a significant support to the story. Universal hoped to capitalize on the established popularity of Claudette Colbert's screen chemistry with actor Fred McMurray. He was cast as Bob, and the egg and I would be their penultimate of seven screen pairings. For Ma and Pa Kettle, producers settled on the raucous, sharp-voiced Marjorie Maine and folksy Percy Kilbride, respectively. For the Kettle's eldest son, who was renamed Tom, they went with Richard Long, whose first screen credit was as Claudette Colbert's son Drew in International Pictures' soapy 1946 romantic drama, Tomorrow is Forever. Filming commenced in October of 1946 and lasted for several months until early January of 1947. Fred McMurray later remembered, and I quote, Claudette and I worked darn hard. We were both at the turn of 40 then, and it isn't easy to keep the ball in the air, to keep it sparkling and spontaneous. I know Claudette was a big asset to the film. It wasn't easy for her getting all dirtied up, sliding down roofs and whatnot, but she was a wonderful sport as always, end quote. On my episode about Hands Across the Table from last season, 
I discussed McMurray's deep affection and respect for Colbert. When the actors made their first film together, The Gilded Lily, back in 1935, McMurray was a relative Hollywood newcomer. Colbert, meanwhile, had been working as an actor on Broadway and later in Hollywood since the early 1920s. McMurray credited Colbert for helping him gain confidence, saying, and I quote, I'll never forget how kind Claudette was. I didn't have the slightest idea what I was doing, but she was so patient with me. She worked and worked with me till I got through it. She was so positive, so kind-hearted, and so unselfish with other players. Her work with me in the Gilded Lily set the pace for my future work, and the style for that matter. Thanks to her, I discovered I had talent for light comedy I didn't think was in me, end quote. McMurray was characteristically down-to-earth, and someone who never commented publicly on any of his co-stars. Privately, however, he admitted that he had two favorite leading ladies. Here's McMurray's daughter, Kate, in an interview with Tiffany Vasquez at the 2017 Turner Classic Movie Film Festival. We obviously have to talk about Claudette Colbert. Claudette, yes. She's... Daddy, and I'm, and I'm way up telling a little naughty right now because Daddy was very protective of all of his leading ladies. And he never liked to say who his favorite leading ladies were. But I'll tell you the two. <laughs> it's okay, Dad, you know. It's, a lot of time has gone by now. Claudette Colbert and Carol Lombard. And we worked with both of them the most. They made numerous pictures together with Carol and also with Claudette. By 1946, Colbert and McMurray had made four additional films together, and by then had fallen into sync with one another's acting styles. That's no more evident in the scene in which Bob and Betty celebrate their anniversary. They both get dolled up in their wedding attire and have a fancy dinner, pretending they're at a posh restaurant. Dinner's ready. I'll be there in a minute. Oh, Bob. I hope I'm not late. Happy Tuesday. Oh, thanks to you and many of them. I, uh, I like your gown. Uh, have I seen it before? Uh, yes, I, I wear it at all my weddings. <laughs> well, where would you like to dine? Any ideas? Wherever you say. Well, there's the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. Wonderful food. Or uh, Antoine's New Orleans, if you like bouillabaisse. Or we might hop over to New York and try uh, 21. Uh, yes, let's try 21. All right. Oh, Mac, do uh, you have a table for us? Oh, this one right here? <laughs> this is our table right here. <laughs> yeah, wonderful looking food. A wonderful looking chef. <laughs> An excellent dinner. My compliments. Thank you. Shall we go dancing? Well, I wouldn't mind. The store club is just around the corner. That sounds fine. I'll have the orchestra play something special. Thanks for a wonderful evening. The actor's chemistry is evident throughout. Watching McMurray and Colbert together is like seeing two old friends get together for the millionth time. 
Now, Fred McMurray is one of my favorite actors, and I've often said that his understated, chameleon-like versatility was his greatest strength, and that, of course, allowed him to reinvent himself throughout his career. He went from rom-com lead to noir anti-hero to all-American Disney dad, seemingly with ease. He was also especially adept at matching the energy of his co-stars, and I think that's why he was the ideal classical Hollywood actor. With Carol Lombard, he could be silly. With Barbara Stanwyck, stoic with a bit of an edge. With Colbert, whose star persona was both sophisticated and warm, McMurray was playful. Colbert's screwball characters are not of the high-energy, rough-and-tumble variety like Lombard or Rosalind Russell. Not that she couldn't pull off physical comedy, and in this film she does at several moments like when she falls into a barrel of water or is knee-deep in a mud pit. But Colbert's forte was light, breezy comedy. Her characters were almost always composed, intelligent, and snappy. McMurray was the ideal partner because he could be all those things too. Their energies complemented each other. Neither one overshadowed the other in style or temperament. They were two halves of a beautiful whole. Earlier this year, when Barbie was released, there was chatter in some film circles about the film's extensive publicity campaign and merchandise tie-ins. Was it too much? Hmm, well, that depends who you ask. But Barbie Fever helped propel the film over the billion-dollar mark. And I bring up Barbie only because nothing about that marketing campaign was particularly innovative. Barbie is one in a long line of media-saturated Hollywood blockbusters. The Egg and I is another. Going back to 1947, a Hollywood trade paper noted that the promotional campaign that began back when the film rights were first announced in July of 1946 had, by 1947, reached steamroller proportions. Simply put, The Egg and I was sold via every conceivable angle. Sure, Universal International rolled out a traditional print ad campaign, but that was just the beginning. In the lead-up to the film's March 21, 1947 premiere, Betty McDonald was flown to the Universal Studios in Burbank for a star-studded banquet in her honor. As part of their multi-pronged merchandise strategy, Universal International published an additional 5,000 copies of her book with limited edition bookmarks and distributed them to exhibitors across the country for in-theater sales. Colbert and McMurray appeared on an episode of Hedda Hopper's This is Hollywood on January 4, 1947 in a condensed dramatized version of the film. And I bring that up because it was rather unusual since the film had not officially been released at that point. Boxes of quote-unquote Colmac Ranch eggs, based on the name of the stars, were auctioned off at LA Market for the Braille Institute. Individual eggs, signed by Colbert and McMurray, went for as much as $20 a piece. A nationwide slick chicken contest was held by the Poultry and Egg Dealers National Board to find, and I quote, the most beautiful hen in America. But the most absurd marketing gimmick of all was conceived by Universal International Press agent Jim Moran, who agreed to sit on an ostrich egg in attempt to hatch it. Moran sat on that egg as he continued to conduct his day-to-day -day business. He was photographed for Life magazine answering telephone calls, reading books, and even getting a shave in a pen on an ostrich farm. 19 days later, it was reported that Moran's egg finally hatched. With a big push from Universal International, Americans had caught egg fever. All of Universal International's wacky publicity efforts were not in vain. 
The Egg and I earned about $5.5 million at the box office, which, at the time, was the studio's biggest domestic grossing film in history. The film was also the second highest grossing film of 1947, just behind Paramount's Welcome Stranger, co-starring Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald. Critics were equally receptive to The Egg and I. The independent exhibitor's film bulletin described it as a hilarious comedy, with McMurray giving one of his top comedy roles in his career. Film Daily's reviewer observed that it is a complete realistic slice of American life, told unabashedly with conviction. Dorothy Kilgallen wrote in Modern Screen that it was a darling picture, that it had quantities of fun in it. She observed that Claudette Colbert is flawlessly cast as the only female alive with enough humor to survive combined blessings and curses of her character. Of Marjorie Maine, Kilgallen gushed that she gives one of the greatest characterizations of all time, while Percy Kilbride is described as a dream of an actor who reaches out of the celluloid and tickles you where you are the most ticklish. Maine's performance received such universal acclaim that she was later nominated for Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress at the 1948 ceremony. She lost to Celeste Holm in Gentleman's Agreement. Following the Egg and I's release, Universal International decided to capitalize on the runaway audience popularity of Marjorie Maine and Percy Kilbride with a spin-off film series. The Ma and Pa Kettle franchise spawned nine films between 1949 and 1957 and earned the studio roughly $35 million at the box office. Each film follows roughly the same formula. Ma, Pa, and their brood are put in fish-out-of-water situations and they must learn to adapt with a mix of their spunk and country know-how. Marjorie Maine said that she and Kilbride got along, and I quote, like a house on fire, and I think that's evident in their screen chemistry. Her Ma Kettle is a battle-axe matriarch, while Kilbride's Pa is her soft-spoken other half. Maine once joked that, and I quote, Ma was the real man of the family, and I think it shows in her performance in The Egg and I. Ma Kettle is loud, stern, and tells it like it is, but she also has an unassuming soft side, which is apparent in her scenes with Colbert. When Betty visits the Kettle Ranch, she encourages Ma to enter her quilt into the local fair and give her prize money to her eldest son's college tuition. Ma is characteristically modest. Uh, uh, get some of them cookies out of that jar in the corner of the pantry and I'll pour some coffee. All right. <laughs> your quotes every year since I was married. Got them in the closet in the spare room. I figure it'd be something real nice to leave the kids when they die. Say, why don't you enter it in the county fair? Oh, really? Oh, you should. It's a wonderful idea. What in tarnation fur? Well, you might win first prize. You could give the money to Tom, he could enter college. Now, wouldn't that be grand? Mm, Tain't no use. 
Verdi Hicks will win it. She wrangles things around every year, so as one of her relations gets on the committee of judges. And... Well, you could try anyway. I've got a better idea for it. What? When it's finished, I'm giving it to you. Oh, no. I, oh, I got well. a whole parcel of them laid away, and there ain't nobody I'd rather see have it. Oh, uh, no. Take another one of them cookies, why don't you? Uh, plenty where they come from. I'll get you some to take home. Now, I have to be honest with you all. Personally, I find Maine's performance style extremely grating. That said, I can see why the series remained popular for so long. Ma is the heart and soul of the Kettle family. She's the anchor of their home. Now, of course, she takes care of all the domestic duties, and as she says in this scene, she adapted herself to Pa's habits. She's caring and motherly, and in spite of her boisterous bluster, she's also surprisingly humble. Ma puts her family first. As the Mom Pod Kettle series continued, Kilbride, a prolific character actor, quickly grew tired of being pigeonholed into one role. After their seventh film, which was Mom Pod Kettle in Waikiki, he had had enough and refused to reprise his role again. In 1953, Kilbride told Bob Thomas of the Sarasota Journal, and I quote, I had my training on the stage where I did a variety of roles. That's the fun of being an actor, to meet the challenge of creating new characters. But Pa Kettle is always the same. He can do anything. There's no need to establish any motivation. There's no kick in doing him over and over again. I had a dozen offers to do television series, but I've turned them all down. I might do one-shot appearances, but I won't let myself get tied down to one character. The series continued for two more films, with Arthur Honeycutt playing Sedge, Pa's brother, in The Kettles in the Ozarks, and Parker Fennelly as Pa himself in The Kettles on Old MacDonald's Farm. In the 1970s, Maine recalled that Kilbride's departure didn't help the series, adding, But that wasn't the whole story. I think they just ran out of stories. That's always going to happen with any movie series. Earlier I talked about Claudette Colbert's cosmopolitan star persona, similar to It Happened One Night, in which Prissy Ellie Andrews finds herself in spaces far removed from her Park Avenue playground. Diagonai deliberately plays with Colbert's image by putting her in an environment you'd least expect. There's something amusingly undignified about seeing Colbert, dressed to the nines in white gloves and a sleek Vera West tailored suit, wandering apprehensively through Betty and Bob's dusty and dilapidated farmhouse. From the start, the film puts us in Betty's perspective, She's literally the I in the title, and the prologue and closing shots in which she directly addresses the camera tells us in no uncertain terms that this is her story. As the film develops, we see how hard it is for Betty to adjust to her new life. There's a running gag throughout the film about Betty not being able to tame the farm's antique wood-fired stove. The stove was so integral to the story that in publicity ephemera, it was even singled out as a character of its own. When she first lays eyes on the mischievous stove during her first walk around the farm, the stove anthropomorphizes and sort of talks back, if you will, by dropping pieces of itself on the ground. What's that? Oh, isn't that a beauty? I bet you've never seen a stove like that in all your life. Just aching for a big side of beef Pot full of soup or a couple of dozen loaves of bread. Fresh bread. I can smell it already. Betty, you're going to have a wonderful time with that stove. <laughs> you can get to the bedroom right to the kitchen here. 
I don't think it likes me. As Betty grows more accustomed to farm life, she tames the stove. She becomes its master and regains the upper hand, but it puts up a good fight. Conversely, the farm is Bob's domain from the start. He is eager to leave their old life and revels in his handiwork to make their destitute surroundings a true working farm and home. Their character contrast is no more apparent than their first night together on the farm. After discovering that their bedroom ceiling leaks when it rains, the couple scatters buckets and dishpans around the room to catch the dripping water. Betty wraps herself up in layers of thick blankets and perches herself in the, on top of the rusty spring bed. She looks very uncomfortable, and you can tell she wishes that she was anywhere else but there. Bob is unfazed. To him, this is a living, and he tells her about their plans which includes suckling pigs, 500 or so chickens, and, eventually, babies of their own. Ah, oh, just smell that. Wonderful to fill your lungs with good, clean air for a change. Well, the first night in our own home. Doesn't it feel great, Betty? Gonna make it a real home, too. Something to be proud of. None of that hit-and-run stuff for us. Just think, Betty. This is where we'll probably spend the rest of our lives. Doesn't it give you a wonderful sense of security? Yeah. Now then, everything's got to be scheduled. Can't leave anything to chance. Farming's a big enough gamble as it is. Now, by June, we should have at least a half dozen sucklings. We'll have a calf in, uh, in July. And then along about August, we can begin to figure out more important offspring. Oh, darling. Maybe five or six hundred of them. Five, six hundred what? Well, chicks, of course. Maybe even more if we're lucky. Well, I'd like to raise something besides chickens, you know. Oh, we'll have plenty of those, too. I'm counting on at least four, maybe even five. Three boys and two girls, huh? <laughs> All at once? Oh, no, no, one at a time. <laughs> Let's schedule the first one for uh, a year from the day. How's that? That looks like a good day for it. Betty does not take to farm life, but the promise of going together with Bob motivates her. She earnestly tries to make a go of it, and helps them collecting eggs even though the chickens don't like her, and she even feeds their pig Cleopatra, a name that audiences at the time would have no doubt understood to be a reference to one of Claudette Colbert's earlier film roles. As Betty and Bob's life on the farm grows more stable, Betty begins to lose a bit of confidence in herself and her femininity particularly as the flirtatious and chic neighbor Harriet Putnam, played by the icy blonde Louise Alberton, continues to make the move on Bob. Every time Harriet visits, she pounces on Bob with coy gestures and double entendres, which, in Betty's mind, threatens their marriage. When Bob and Betty go visit Harriet's upscale farm, Bella Vista, Betty sizes Harriet up. Boy, it's certainly a beautiful layout. Well, Betty, maybe one of these days we can have something like this. We ever get a contract for our eggs? Well, I can speak to Mr. Henty for you if you like. He's the agent for Great Western Markets out here. 
They buy all my dairy products. Well, I certainly appreciate it. We're just about at the stage where we can handle a steady contract. I'll talk to him. He, uh, he does almost anything I ask him to do. He's such a dear. A young man, I take it? Uh, he used to be. He's a little crotchety now, I'm afraid. Besides, uh, he has a wife. <laughs> Those were the old rules. Well, uh, Harriet, do you think maybe we could go outside and look around a little? Oh, of course. I'd love to show it off. Just wait till we get to the barn and I'll show you my speckled Sussex. Her what? Speckled Sussex. That's a breed of hen. Very special, too. Oh. In their previous life, Betty probably wouldn't have given Harriet a second thought. But here, in a space where she's only just finding her footing, her confidence is shaken by Harriet's effortlessly chic, unbothered demeanor. And it begins to affect Betty's psyche. There's an evocative moment just before the aforementioned anniversary scene in which Betty, exhausted from a day's work of her farm chores, looks into her bedroom mirror and takes an inventory of herself. She stands with her hands on her hips and bursts out laughing at what she sees reflected back at her. She grabs the collar of her buttoned-down plaid shirt, shakes her head, and smiles as if to say, Who's that woman looking back at me? She almost can't believe who she has become, but at the same time, her smile tells us that she kind of likes this new person. And what's more, Betty becomes her old self, at least temporarily, by putting on her wedding dress. It's just a quiet moment in an otherwise silly and romantic film, but I think it reveals so much about her character, the film's gender politics, or relative lack thereof, and where comedy was headed in the post-war period. Betty has more interiority than some of her screwball sisters, but I think initially she's far less as self-assured than audiences had come to expect from comedy heroines, especially compared to those of the previous decade. Now, The Egg and I is not a film that I'd necessarily classify as pure screwball, but it certainly borrows elements from the genre to blend with a silly romantic narrative. It's a charming film, and arguably my favorite of the Colbert-McMurray collaborations. What's more, I think it's a prime example of how elements of the genre evolved to fit a mid-century sensibility. Following World War II, American comedies became generally less concerned with social and class issues, and as scholar Christopher Beach argues, the Cold War was dictating norms of social propriety to a greater extent than at any time in the previous two decades. As such, American comedy became anchored to the home and a more genteel domestic milieu. The Egg and I, like some of its contemporaries like Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House and The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, for example, is not as transgressive in its gender or social politics as films from the 1930s, although unlike the other two films I just mentioned, it does at least superficially acknowledge a class divide with a contrast between wealthy Harriet Putnam and the Kettles, who are very clearly working class coded. Although, to be fair, not much is done here to elaborate on that point. But generally speaking, comedies from that period tended to focus on what Beach calls questions of status and panic. That exists on a macro level, and Beach cites Father of the Bride as an example of middle-class commodity culture satire. It also exists at a micro level, in The Egg and I, Betty's initial self-doubt manifests in her response to her new life on the farm. She wonders who she is and what type of woman she'll become. Over the course of the film, Betty learns that she is fundamentally the same person, only one who's also resilient and tenacious, qualities that develop with the support of people like Tom and Ma Kettle, and, in a roundabout way, even Harriet. In the film prologue, Betty is shown riding on a train. A porter serves her breakfast but her hard-boiled egg breaks as he puts down the tray. He tells her it's just an egg and then he'll get her a new one. 
She chastises him, saying that it takes a village to raise a chicken. As she does, she turns to the camera to address the viewer, and she says, I should know. And I think that's true of the egg, but also of Betty too. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye-bye! <laughs>